Well, for the remainder of our time, let us return then to that chapter we read from the Acts of the Apostles, and let us look together at this chapter, chapter 10. And the title I want to give to the meditation this evening is A Double Conversion. A Double Conversion. And I do hope as we go through our meditation that the title will become clearer to us and we do seek the Lord's blessing. I don't want to isolate one particular text or section and rather I'd like to draw one or two practical lessons from this long chapter for our edification this evening. We left Peter at Joppa, modern-day Jaffa, last Lord's Day evening. And we notice there in verse 43 of chapter 9, we noticed it was significant. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon a tanner. And we <clears throat> drew from that that uh, the Lord was indeed working in Peter because this is something that Peter ordinarily would never have done. Simon the Tanner was one whose work involved dealing with dead animals and their skins. And because of his occupation, he would be regarded as ceremonially unclean by the Jews. But here we find that Peter tarried many days with him. And chapter 10 then brings us to Caesarea. That's about 28 to 30 miles away from Joppa. And we're introduced to someone called Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion, part of what was known as the Italian band. And he had a hundred men under his authority. The scriptures tell us that he was a, a devout, God-fearing man. But he was a Gentile. And that just simply means he wasn't a Jew. And therefore, he was not part of the Old Testament people of God because of his race, because of who he was, a Gentile. When the Roman centurion Cornelius and others were converted following the preaching of the Apostle Peter, it marked the time when the gospel was initially received by the Gentiles. And it marked a, a notable time in the life of the New Testament church, because now it had gone from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria, and now it had come to the Gentiles. And therefore, it is a very significant mark in the life of the church. Now, if you have been following us, and if you have been thinking as indeed all of us should, but thinking is hard work. But we should be thinking people. And uh, 
it's good for us to meditate and to think upon these things. But if you have been thinking as we've been following the book of Acts, you will have noticed that the Ethiopian eunuch was converted under the ministry of uh, he's just gone from me. Philip, thank you. I knew it began with a P, a P. Philip, yeah, under the ministry of Philip. Now the Ethiopian eunuch was also a Gentile. But chapter 10 here is regarded at the, as the time when the gospel came fully to the Gentiles. Now the Ethiopian eunuch, because of his physical condition, he could not become a Jewish proselyte. He could not be circumcised. Now Cornelius was different. Cornelius wasn't a proselyte and he didn't undertake circumcision, although he could have, but he didn't. He was a synagogue goer, we believe, a devout man, but he didn't become a Jewish proselyte. One commentator brings out something interesting here, and he goes back to Acts chapter 8, and he notices there that the Ethiopian uh, eunuch was converted. And he was a descendant of Ham. He was a descendant of Ham, where the people of Cush were, where Ham's descendants went to the land of Cush. That's where the Ethiopian eunuch came from and was going to. In Acts chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He was a descendant of Shem. The Jews came from Shem. So you had the Ethiopian eunuch who came, who came from the people of of Ham, and then you had Saul of Tarsus, a Jew who was a descendant of Shem, and now here we have in Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles being converted, and they came from Japheth. These three people that I've mentioned, they were sons of Noah. And it's from the sons of Noah that the peoples of the world were populated. Yes, we know that all of us have come from Adam and Eve. But then God brought upon us, upon the world, that great flood. And at the flood, it was only Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives that were saved. And therefore, Mankind came from these three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham, from them came the people of Cush, 
from Shem came the Jews, and from Japheth came the Gentiles. And one commentator notices there that by now, by this chapter 10, here the gospel had gone to all the nations of the world. And this is what we notice here, that the gospel came with power and with authority to the Gentiles, the last group, as it were, to receive the gospel. And Peter, who had been given the keys of the kingdom earlier, was the one who unlocked the keys of the kingdom to the Gentiles. And as I said, I want to try to draw one or two practical lessons from this long chapter for our meditation this evening. The first thing I want us to notice as the gospel came officially to the Gentiles, I want us to notice the hand of God. The hand of God. We see it here. We see it in Cornelius. What do we find him doing? He was fasting. And at the ninth hour, which would have been three o'clock in the afternoon, the time that the evening sacrifice would be offered up in the temple in Jerusalem, we find that he was fasting and he began to pray at three o'clock in the afternoon. He sees a vision. He sees someone in bright raiment. And that person, an angel of God, tells him what to do, that he's got to get in touch with Peter. Peter's living or staying in Joppa with someone called Simon the Tanner. And they, he is to go there and he's to make contact with Peter and he's to hear what Peter has to say to him. And what happens 21 hours later on, following from this? Peter's hungry. Around midday, he goes up to the top of the roof. He wants for some food. The food is made for him. And he sees a vision. And this vision is a sheet coming down from heaven with all kinds of four-footed things, animals, reptiles, on this sheet. And he's told, rise, Peter, eat and kill. Peter says, no, I've never done this before in my life. I've never eaten anything unclean in all my life. And he's, he is told what God has cleansed, call not thou common. And this happened three times. Peter was wondering about it. He didn't know what this, what this vision meant. He was pondering. He was thinking about it. And as he was thinking about it, the people that Cornelius had sent to go to Joppa arrived and they arrived outside the gate and they made inquiries for Peter. And you know what happened. Peter entertained them. They stayed there overnight. And then they made the long journey, 28 to 30 miles, would have taken the best part of a day. And they arrive at Caesarea. We see, friends, the hand of God. Ordering and directing all things. Even these small things, they were all there for a purpose. They were all there in order that ultimately Peter would go and that he would preach the gospel to Cornelius, to his kinsfolk, and to his friends that he had gathered, and that they would hear 
and that they would live, that the, the Holy Spirit might descend upon them, their hearts were opened, and they believed the everlasting gospel concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And there we see the hand of God moving and working, preparing his servant and preparing the hearers also to hear the word of the living God. And we want to notice particularly that the hand of God was on Peter. Peter was a devout Jew. Yes, he was a Christian. Yes, indeed, he was filled with the spirit of the living God. He had been a, an apostle, and he was one who had tabernacled with the Lord Jesus for three years and had seen him after the resurrection, and he was truly an apostle. But God was working in him, and God was, in some sense, converting the apostle Peter because he had certain views about certain things. He was a Jew, and he wasn't prepared to give these things up, but God revealed to him in a vision that things had changed. It was God who had introduced this law whereby the Jews were not allowed to eat certain things. Some things were unclean to them. And God had given them that law in the Old Testament that they might recognize that they were a separate people and they were not, were not to be like the nations round about them. That's why that law was given to them, that they would recognize that they were God's people and God had put these restrictions upon them that they would not live like others. It didn't mean to say they had to separate from the, Jew, from the Gentiles, but they weren't to live and they weren't to eat like the Gentiles. But Peter had to realize that all of that was now abrogated. It was all changed. And these dietary laws were over. And this was a lesson for Peter, and it was a conversion experience for him. And he had to receive this message, and indeed he had to think upon it, ponder it, and ultimately when he, when he saw the people coming there, asking him to go and to preach the gospel to Cornelius, he had to see that God was giving him a message and God was changing him in order that he might be effective in the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. And it was by stages. It didn't just happen. It was by stages that Peter came into this realization that the gospel indeed was for the Gentiles, and it was not going to be confined to the Jews. This is what they had been taught. This is not what the scriptures had said. In the Old Testament, the scriptures make it clear that the gospel, that all, all nations would be blessed through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be. But this is something that the Jews had added to the Old Testament, if you like, the Old Testament teachings, and Peter had to unlearn these things. And he had to recognize that God indeed was going to save a people out of the Gentiles also. And this is what happened here. Peter, in one real sense, was converted. He was changed. And his prejudices had to be overcome. I wonder if there's a lesson for us here. I wonder, friends, have we got to see the bigger picture? 
we must be fully aware that the gospel is to be proclaimed to every creature, every man, woman, and child. There are no exclusion zones. Oh yes, God knows his elect. That is true, but we don't know who the elect are. And the elect don't know they're the elect until they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, until they call upon him. And therefore the church has a mandate, friends, not just to preach the gospel within its four walls, but to go out and to preach whatever people will hear and whatever people will listen. And we have the hand of God then, God ordering and directing all things. After Cornelius had his vision, 21 hours after, Peter also had a vision, and all things worked together in order that ultimately they would hear about Jesus and live. The second thing I would like to draw from this chapter is that we need to be more than God-feeding. Cornelius was a morally upright individual. Now that might surprise some people when you consider his occupation. He was a centurion. He was a Roman soldier. He wouldn't be on peacekeeping missions. He would be someone who, when called upon, would fight and who would kill. But the Bible calls him here devout, a devout man, and one that feared God with all his house, and so on. He was an exemplary individual. But this man needed to hear about Jesus. And this man had to put his faith and his hope and his trust upon Jesus Christ. And it reminds us, friends, that morality is not enough. We can be, in some sense, God-feeding. That is not enough. We must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. That's why the Bible tells us, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This man had to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. He had to hear about what God has done in Christ, and he had to put his faith and his hope and his trust upon Jesus Christ and upon him alone. This man, if you like, followed Judaism as far as he could without becoming a proselyte. He would be one who would attend the synagogue. He would be one who would observe the Sabbath. He was obviously a devout individual. Here we find him fasting and praying at the appropriate time. He was, in some sense, joining with the worshipers in the temple. But that was not enough. He needed to hear about Jesus. 
He needed to hear about the forgiveness that's found only in Jesus Christ. He needed to hear about the Son of God who came down from heaven and undertook what none of us could possibly do, satisfy God, holy, inflexible, and just law. In verse 37, too, it says something quite remarkable to us. Here, Peter, who's going, we have a summary of his, ser of his sermon, we would say. And verse 37, he's talking about the life and the witness about Jesus Christ. That word I say, ye know. They knew something about the Lord Jesus, and that's hardly surprising. The Lord Jesus had a tremendous effect during his three uh, years of earthly ministry. And they heard something about the Lord Jesus. They heard maybe about his, his death and about his resurrection. We don't know how much they, they knew, but they heard something about him. And Peter was able to tell them, well, these are some of the things you know. I'm not bringing something that's completely new to you. You know this, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. But friends, he had to be presented with the gospel and with the claims of Christ. It wasn't quite simple enough to know about him, to know about his history, to know what he did, but the point of application had to come upon Cornelius he had to have personal dealings with Christ himself. He had to know this wonderful, glorious experience of being born again by the Spirit of the living God descending upon him. This is what happened to him there. The Spirit of God came upon him. Those who heard the gospel, what happened? They began to speak in tongues. Now, we don't expect that to happen to us today. We firmly believe that has been conf confined to the apostolic age. Many will not agree with that, but that would be our position. But nevertheless, their hearts had to be opened. They had to know the mighty, pow powerful Holy Spirit working upon them. And that's what happened. To be a God-fearer, friend, was not enough for Cornelius. He had to have peace with God. And that peace was only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, I would like to notice here what I've called pure in Christ, pure in Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, if we go back to Peter's vision, what do we find in verse 15? After Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. 
And verse 28 highlights it again. Peter's own words, ye know how that it is unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. What am I driving at here? Well, Peter called these things unclean, the things that he saw upon the sheet. And the message that he received is these things are not common or unclean anymore. God has removed the restriction and the Old Testament restrictions are gone. We're in a new era, a new dispensation. God is doing something wonderful and these Old Testament restrictions are no longer valid. And Peter had to learn that lesson, that they were no longer common and they were no longer unclean. And in Peter's mind, that would refer also to the, to the things that were on the sheet and also to the Gentiles themselves. Because to the Jews, they were called dogs. That's how the Jews would refer to the Gentiles, as dogs. Now, that was never part of the Old Testament. God never said that. But this is how the Jews looked upon the Gentiles. They were mere dogs, certainly second-class citizens. And God is telling him that the things that are on the sheet and the Gentiles themselves are not common and they are not unclean. And he is to go forth and minister with that in mind. Well, the lesson is clear for us all. The lesson that I want to derive from this principle is that there is nothing common and unclean. I want it to apply to the Christian. What do I mean? Well, the Christian on some occasions, maybe when his Christian walk is not what it should be, he's maybe not as close to the Lord as he should be, and he begins to look upon himself and he begins to think upon his former sins and his former lifestyle. And it begins to cloud his fellowship that he once had with his creator God and with the people of God. And somehow he is drifting back or she is drifting back to their old lifestyle when they must realize that when they became Christians, their old lifestyle was erased. They were cleansed. They were forgiven. They were reconciled to God. They have been justified by faith. And because of that, they have peace with God. And how many Christians, friends, look back upon their old lives and somehow they think now that now that they're in Christ, somehow they're not as clean as they should be. Friends, do you not realize? Does the Christian not realize when you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are clean in his sight. 
you have the righteousness of Christ. You are never as righteous as you will be today. Even in glory, you will not be any more righteous. Oh, you might know it and you might feel it, but as far as God is concerned, the moment that you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you are righteous in his sight. You are clean. Your sins have been forgiven. And nothing can change that. And therefore, you are to live in the light of that. Oh, your heart may condemn you. And other people might look down upon you. And they might cast aspersions upon you. But as far as God is concerned, the true-hearted Christian is truly cleansed from that moment that he embraces Christ in the gospel. That moment he truly believes this is what we preach. This is what we believe. This is the very essence of the gospel. You can know your sins are forgiven. You can know the peace that that brings. And don't go back into the old life. Don't let your mind wander. Don't let the evil one cast his fiery darts at you and bring to your remembrance the, the things that you've done in times past and the sins that you're ashamed of Friend, the Christian is forgiven. And therefore, the Christian is pure in Christ. Not in himself, of course, but in Jesus Christ alone. And the only way to be right with God is to come and to call upon him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And fourthly and briefly and finally, we want to notice this, that when Peter came to Cornelius' house and they were there assembled, and what a congregation it was. What a congregation. Cornelius had done his work. He had told them there was a preacher coming. He gathered his family and his kinsfolk. They gathered together. And what do you see? You see, the people are waiting for the preacher. Very often today, it's different. The preacher's waiting for the people. But no, here is Cornelius. Oh, he's, he wants to hear this word his heart is ready and open for it, and they're all gathered there. And what do we find in verse 33? For instance, immediately therefore I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now therefore are we all here present before God. They were gathered there in the presence of God. Cornelius had an extraordinary experience, an experience that none of us is likely to know, an experience. He saw an angel, this man in bright shining clothes, clothes that was there when he began to pray, and he spoke to him, and he revealed things to him, a glorious and a wonderful experience. There surely was the presence of God, but also when Peter was there and when the gospel was going to be proclaimed, what does Cornelius say? Here we are 
in the presence of God. Friends, it's exactly the same today. Exactly. Here we are in the presence of God. This should solemnize us. This should quicken us. This should awaken us. Here they were attentive. Peter was about to speak. He was going to open his mouth. He was going to declare to them the gospel. And they recognized we're in the presence of God. I wonder, can this be said of us? Can this be said of you? Do you really think that when you come to the house of God, that you're in his presence? We don't have an angel here. We don't have an angel appearing. We don't have any extraordinary experience. But nevertheless, we're here in the presence of God. And in some way, the gospel has been proclaimed to us. And it's not confined to us. Whatever we go, it's exactly the same. And when that word was proclaimed, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. This is what we should be asking for. This is what we should be reminding ourselves that what we're about. We love to meet with one another. But friends, when we come to this place, or any other place that's set apart for the, for the worship of God and where his worship is honored, we're in the presence of God. It was a double conversion then. The Gentiles received the gospel. Wonderful things happened. It was a very notable occasion because the next chapter goes on to rehearse it, to tell it again. It's in the book of Acts twice that we would notice that this truly was a remarkable occasion where the gospel had now gone into the Gentiles and it would go to the very ends of the earth. And we bless God that it has come to us. Let me then close. Has it come to you? Have you embraced the Savior? Come, therefore. Let us know this experience. Let us know this conversion experience. And the only way we can know it is to have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. Let us pray together.